Hello everybody and welcome to Ranked, the podcast where movie lovers come together to rank your favorite movies. Which movies will make you reach a cinematic orgasm? And which ones will leave a shit stain in the history of cinema? There's only one way to find out. Join us. My name is Caitlin Denny, filmmaker and archivist. And I'm Julian Vargas, filmmaker. We obsessively watch all the movies by one director, actor, writer, or under a particular theme and rank them from best to worst. This is episode 3, part 2. Today we're covering the beginning of Milos Forman's Hollywood career. Czechoslovakian filmmaker. Um, and we're not watching his documentaries. We're just doing his feature-length films. Right, Julian? Yes. All right, moving on to what may be his... Moving on to what may be Milos Forman's most well-known film and most critically acclaimed is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1975. So 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was Foreman's first successful American film, earning him his first Oscar for Best Director and Best Picture. McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson, is a statutory rapist who pleads insanity to avoid prison time. McMurphy soon finds out he's not so different from his fellow patients, while he schemes to find a way out of the institution at any cost. This film was based on the Ken Kesey novel, though the screenplay was changed to be from the perspective of Nicholson's McMurphy, rather than from the Chief's perspective, played by Will Sampson. Nicholson's best friend, Danny DeVito, co-stars, as well as Christopher Lloyd and Brad Dourif. Ken Kesey never saw this film. In fact, he sued the producers of this film because... They changed the perspective of the book. Well, and that was the whole point of the book, was to be from the perspective of the, the Native yeah, American yeah. character. Um, also talking about that, uh, what the response that Foreman had about this is that he thought that um, the narration, uh, the, you know, the first person narration was, was more suited for literature than for film. So that was his reasoning of changing it. But even so, uh, he could have taken out an yeah, actual narration exactly. and had it exactly. from the viewpoint of Exactly. I think, I think what happened here is like they were enamored with a star like Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. And probably they were like, I don't know, studio pressures. Who knows? 1975, and, Jack yeah. Nicholson? That guy got anything he, he fucking wanted. Yeah, he was wanted. hot. Yeah. So he was, he was like, like the hot actor at the time. So right. um, I think that's part of the reason why it was... Altered and don't get that. me wrong, he was excellent in the film as this character. I think he plays it very well. But I, yeah, he probably he probably had a lot to do with him and Foreman deciding on this ch- big yeah. change for the film. Yeah, um, and also Ken. How do you pronounce Ken Kesey? And actually, Ken Kesey, he actually wanted to direct the adaptation of the. He wrote his own script. adapting this book and he wanted to be in it as well he wanted to so he was a very ambitious guy but I guess he didn't have the backing I guess to make it himself Um, I don't believe he'd ever directed a film before so he had been working on films actually um, beforehand but just with the Merry Pranksters the group of people mm-hmm. that he was doing the acid tests with and making very low budget films and plays they would put on plays quite often um, so he had like a theatrical background and experience but he had never made a you know what this movie was expected to be was a, they wanted to be a box office hit yeah. so yeah, they weren't going to risk putting yeah. him at the helm of that when they had somebody who potentially you know could be an award winner for them. Exactly. Director. Um, this is an interesting thing. The, pretty much the entire film was shot in sequence. That oh, wow. never happens. And I really, I think that really helps the acting in this film and the development of the characters. Mm-hmm. You see them spiral out of control and you see their relationships fall mm-hmm. apart and get closer and very naturally. Which is interesting because even though they had that... Um, there, there was also a lack of continuity in terms of who the director of photography was. Uh, from, from what I um, actually I read it in, in his uh, in his Milos Forman um, autobiography, they actually went through three uh, directors of photography 
uh, in this movie. He was having a lot of conflicts with Haskell Wexler. Yeah. Because he kept in questioning uh, Foreman's competence. And it became like an issue. He didn't trust him. And and I kind of relate with this because, you know, I have an accent and Foreman has an accent. And and I think there's sort of like this distrust for for like foreigners or when you can't speak... Uh, the language without any accent then there's like they think you're less capable or something and I think that might be something that he was dealing with this I don't know about okay I mean we'll never know but Haskell Wexler is um, also a director himself Mm -hmm. so it might have to do with like a power struggle as well also he's like he was like a hippie dude who was anti-capitalist and all about the same ideas that he in his films that he directed Medium Cool which is an amazing film um, basically that could have been a Foreman movie and maybe their ideas were so similar and they were both directors that that yeah, just, just wasn't going to work ego out. thing, yeah. who knows. But yeah, so there was a lot of tension. So it's interesting that you see like it, the good continuity but there was also, which actually makes you know Foreman even, a, it, it makes him even a better director. I don't know yeah. exactly who shot what. No, I don't. I, I wonder. Know. That's very interesting. So he started with Haskell and he ended with I'm not, Bill Butler? I think he ended, I don't know exactly the sequence of it, okay. but I just know that they went through like three of them. That's and crazy. the main conflict was with uh, Haskell Wexler. They, they were not getting along because apparently he didn't trust Foreman. Um, Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I, used, I loved this film when I watched it first, but I'm not as in love with it after seeing it again. I felt the same way. We watched this movie together. Yeah. And I think at the end... Yeah, I think at the end we were both... Oh, yeah. We remember this. Um, We're not as blown... Blown away by it. Blown away by it. I think there's a lot of great elements in this film, but it's definitely a little dated. And I have to say, I, I think... I was bothered sometimes by Jack Nicholson's performance. I thought he was overacting sometimes. Especially at the beginning, I was cringing a little bit. Like that scene when he's entering the hospital and he's kind of like fake dancing. You know, that was all improvised. Yeah, but it it might have been, but just looked very, it looked a little bit kind of, it looks kind (laughs) of, it just looks a little bit hokey. Looks like he was like overacting a little bit, you know, with his eyebrows and stuff. And I have that issue with Nicholson many times. Sometimes I think he kind of like, I think he does that. That's his thing is, I mean, um, he he reminded me of his character in The Shining, the way that dance scene. But to me, I appreciate him more. And I think he was more, to me, more successful as an actor when he was acting with the other actors and he was interacting with the other ones and actually my favorite films of the movie are the sessions with the crazy folks when they're all like talking to the nurse and they're doing like therapy Uh I love those scenes and he's not the center of attention he's not the center of attention that's why maybe that's why I like it he's a great ensemble cast actor oh yeah I mean he's it's just hard to say he's great in a lot of movies where he's the star but um five easy pieces I love that Mm -hmm. film um American New Wave, but yeah, I see what you're saying about his his overacting. Sometimes, in this film. not always. Sometimes he's on point. On the other hand, all of the other actors were Are excellent, magnificent. Everything else, everyone else is, is was great Danny in the movie. And Christopher I mean, Lloyd and Christopher Lloyd and Taxi represent. And the other uh, two actors, uh, also uh, Brad Dourif, that you mentioned, he's amazing. Yeah. Yes. In that role. And he will go on to be in another Foreman film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, ragtime. But yeah, all of the performances from them, them were... And this is interesting because this is his first film working with probably a very large cast of professional actors, mm-hmm. right? Because there ta- were a lot of non-actors. like In Taking Off. Well, in this or, one too. Like oh, a lot one. of the... None of the main actors. I, I mean, I don't know, but, but some of the the extras were non-actors. Like a lot of the patients were actually patients. Some of them. Yes. Some of the nurses were actually nurses, and some of the security guards were security guards yeah. in real life. So he still continued that the non-actors mm-hmm. thing because he felt comfortable around them. He got great performances out of them. He really knew how to direct them. Oh yeah, it was. It's. Um, it, there's no denying about denial about that. It was excellent. Yeah. Um, Taking Off definitely has professional actors in it, but uh, but less so than One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So mm-hmm. this is really his, like, all right, I'm doing this, getting into Hollywood here, got to work with professional actors, a lot of them, and he did a great job. And maybe Jack Nicholson's, you know, aura 
kind of took control sometimes. But according to Foreman, he actually loved working with Nicholson. Really? And the reason why he loved working with Nicholson is because he didn't act like a star. And I don't know if he's changed, you know, with fame and whatnot. But at that time, he said that he was just like an actor amongst other actors. And it was just uh, very easy to get along. And he didn't have any, he didn't have any like diva moments with Nicholson. Well, that's good. Yeah. Like you did with Haskell. Um... Yeah, this was uh, originally turned into well, it was the it was the book, and then it ter- was turned into a play. Mm-hmm. And Kirk Douglas played the McMurphy character. Actually, well, he wanted to play it in the movie too, but then he was a little bit too old, too old. to play it. Too oh yeah, it's interesting. Douglas. Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas—they're part of the producing team of this film. Like they really yeah. want to get it off the ground. They wanted to make it happen, and they were the ones who actually reach out to Milos Forman to get it done. Right. It's just sad to me. I just keep going back to, you know, the origin of the story, mm-hmm. the Ken Kesey book, and how disappointed he was in yeah. their, the way... I think there's a lot to come out of this movie that's positive, but I think you're right in that it's very dated. There are certain scenes well, that feel a little icky, and I know those aren't in the book, and I think that's why Ken Kesey never saw this movie and didn't approve of it. Well, I think what I the main my main issue with this film that to me kind of makes it dated is that it does have like a liberal lefty kind of tendency, but it's kind of like a bit of a dated progressivism. It's a kind of progressivism that didn't didn't really think about including people of color or including women. Yeah, and I think that's the problem with this film and. Like, for example, the only character of color there, uh, I mean, aside from the well, the Indian, and he's obviously a drunk, and that he has problems with alcoholism. Like, he's not him, but his family, they talk about. Yeah. Um, chief. The Native yeah, American guy? The chief, guy? yeah. And the Native American guy. Like, so th- that's the stereotype right there. Mm-hmm. Although, it's kind of sad, because actually the actor, uh, Will Sampson, end up, ends up becoming an alcoholic and dying. Like right, like pretty soon after the movie, uh, he he That's died pretty. So yeah, depressing. it is. But also they have the black character, the only black character uh, who is played by, who's played by Scatman Crothers. Um, I did find that character to be a bit of an ugly stereotype, and it kind of reminded me of like the beginning of Hollywood, how um, they had actors like Stephen Stephen Fetchett, who would always like in early Hollywood and they would play kind of like the dumb they were always kind of like the black actors were always playing something dumb or they were kind of like the butt of the jokes and they were not very intelligent and they were corruptible and that's exactly what this character is he is not he doesn't seem to he's very he's corruptible all they need is like alcohol too so they can do whatever the fuck they want and I think that's kind of like a shame I mean it's like if that's the one actor of color like aside from you know the two actors of color they're both kind of like a stereotype and themselves it's like yes yeah. they're the only well there are also the, and not um, a stereotype yeah there are also the I don't know what you call them the wardens or the um, uh, the security officers at work at the institution and some of them are men of color yeah like they were and, brown or they were black yeah but they're they're they just don't there. get any speaking roles. They don't get any they're speaking in the background roles, exactly. and they're kind of like, man, nothing. And it, it is actually part of reality from that a lot of people of color, at least blacks and Latinos, usually end up getting these jobs because yeah. there were jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Nobody wants to. I'd like it's to a difficult take, job. You know, now that you're talking about, I'd like to take another look at this movie actually and, mm-hmm. and pay more attention to those. Um, the security officer characters, because I do remember there are a few scenes where they they have kind of some powerful moments themselves. But you're right that the two main characters of color in this film They're are both, just stereotypes. Yeah, I mean, and it's not. a waste. I, I mean, I think with the yeah, it's a wasted opportunity. Like yes. I, I think they could have just dwell with this with these characters in a different way, especially the chief, the chief, because in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the original, he had more of a role, it seems. So like, I want to know more about him. And, and I think his stereotypes are not, it's, I, I'm not always against the stereotypes. If you show us like a rounded character and you show us complexity, I think it could right. work. Like for example, with the alcoholic, uh, character or 
you know, you can you can build the poem yeah. around that and you can have complexity right. to it. But I don't think there was much of that in this one. He's always like silent. And then we learned that he's pretending to be silent. And then the stereotype of the black character is just like a really, I don't think that there's, there's the that, that, that was, there's no way around it. It's just like a nasty stereotype and it's just kind of offensive. Um, and then we also get Nurse Ratchet, who is completely evil. I know she's doing her job, but... She's a stereotype of uh, of a single, career-driven woman. Exactly. Oh, she's a raging bitch. That's that's the stereotype. Exactly. She can't laugh, and doesn't have a sense of humor. No, and she's so bad that she makes one of them commit suicide. Yeah, because she... one of her comments. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's disappointing. But yeah, it's it's... It has a really, really great moments in the film, but I think it's the dated progressivism of the film that really kind of it—it—it mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't, to me at least, it doesn't allow it to be as great as people think this film is. Yeah, I think we should all take a second look at it. Yeah, I don't think it has aged well, unfortunately. Right, beautiful film though. You know, it's not a bad film, and no. it's definitely still part of the canon of of American cinema and forever will be. And whenever you're going to look at a at a movie that's on a on a you know dealing with mental illness and mental patients, you definitely want to watch this movie because especially those therapy scenes are just excellent. Yeah. It's They're really like the best part. And, and also when they go on that trip on the boat that's a beautiful that, that's scene. A, that's amazing. You know what that scene reminded me of? Okay, so Jack Nicholson breaks out and brings a bunch of the patients with him on this they kind of steal a boat and they go sailing it reminds me of a what about bob with bill murray when they go sailing with him oh shit you should watch that okay i'll cut it out um one last thing i wanted to mention that is kind of interesting is like one of uh, milo's foreman's um uh, directors that he took in his, under his wing uh, his name is james mangled and and he actually ended up um making the movie Girl Interrupted, which is about a, you know, a mental a, a mental institution for women. Uh, it's interesting. He actually, um, they actually met at, at Colum the Columbia University because uh, he was a professor there, Milos Forman, and that's where he met um, James Mangold and mentored him. And yeah, they both ended up making like a similar film. That's cool. I love Girl Interrupted, but. That's another one That's, I think I should revisit. I, I agree. <sighs> I think it's one that I should revisit too. That was a song from the next movie that we're covering, uh, 1979 musical Hair. Uh, it is an adaptation of an anti-war stage Broadway musical of 1968. Uh, the film follows a group of hippies led by Berger, played by Treat Williams, who do their best to save their new friend, a war draftee, Claude, from the senseless dangers of the Vietnam War. It was choreographed by Twyla Harp, who when asked for the first time if she wanted to work on the film, she said, that piece of shit? But Milos ended up convincing her. The original writers of the stage version hated the film, claiming that hippies were portrayed as oddballs and some sort of aberration, without any connection to the peace movement. It was generally well received by critics, but it was not a financial successfully. It was not a financially successful film. That's a shame. I love this movie. I'm so happy I saw this movie. Um, been wanting to see it for a while. But I'll <clears throat> disclaimer is that I love musicals. I don't know if you totally know that about me. I I, I didn't. Um, I didn't know you loved them so much. I love them, but I wouldn't say like I'm a musical aficionado. 
It's just that when I see them, yeah. I love them. Like, West Side Story is well, one of my favorite movies ever. And Milos Forman seems to think that because this is actually one of the movies that if he's, when he was alive, obviously, mm-hmm. if he was going to show to people one of his movies, like show and tell, yeah. this is the movie he would pick because really? he thinks people like musicals. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. He's such a nice guy. I know. And it's true. Music brings us together. And if the lyrics happen to be... Sodomy, fellatio. <laughs> I know, it's hilarious. Sodomy, that really brings people together. Um, I have never seen a stage performance of hair, so mm, I really yeah. can't comment on the differences between the stage performance and the film. Um, but it sounds like maybe the characters were portrayed in more of a, um, uh, yeah, a peace activist sort of mm-hmm. role in the stage play. Whereas in this film, they're seen less doing that and more dropping acid, kind of being bums, asking for money, um, but living an alternative lifestyle and not mm-hmm. har- harming anybody in the end, and really trying to challenge people's again a form and trope, challenge the social normalities and formalities of the day even though he's doing it within an American context mm-hmm. uh, this time again. This is his third American film. He actually bought the rights for hair like a while ago. Really? Like before uh, Cuckoo's Nest because he liked it so much oh. and he wanted to adapt it. So That's it's, so it's, cool. So, she, he, so he really likes this film. And, and he liked the play a lot too. Then. Yeah, correct. So that's so... I love thinking about him watching. Yeah. The, going to the musical. Okay. Um, I I I am I'm uneven about this film. There's certain things that I like about it, but I think I'm definitely not a musical person. I like mm-hmm. some musicals, but sometimes I, I I just have trouble connecting to them. And I feel like that happened to me in this movie at a certain point. Like it's hard to see character development or really kind of getting too deep into the characters and who they are when they're always singing so I think that part kind of like kind of like stopped me from being completely sold yeah I think the singing brings them together though and okay well we obviously have a difference of opinion but the the singing and the music for me strengthens their relationships because so much happens during Don't get me all wrong. of the songs I like some of the I mean for entertainment value I like a lot, some of the musical performance, especially the beginning, the Age of Aquarius, that is a dazzling and it's a great beginning. Word. It's such dazzling. a great opening yes. shot. What's the choreographer's name again? Twyla Tharp. Twyla Tharp. Yeah. Twyla sure. Tharp is the choreographer, and he actually ended up working with her um, later on um, in Ragtime and Amadeus. Right, so, right. I saw her name. So it's interesting how he. Yeah. He's very faithful to people that he works with. If he has a good experience, he's probably going to keep you along. Yeah, that's great. She did an amazing job, and it was so funny that she said that piece of shit. Oh, yeah, (laughs) she was not into it, but but she did something. I mean, I haven't, like I said, I haven't seen the stage play or the choreography for that, but she did something just phenomenal that I've never seen in choreography in this movie. It was. It was dazzling, Julian. It, but I was dazzled the entire time. I was not. <laughs> At some point, I was a little bit disconnected from it. Uh, I think the scenes that, to me, were the most like touching or interesting. Uh, I like that scene with Cheryl Barnes, who is the one who plays Lafayette's wife, when she sings that song about, you know, it seems like he's leaving her and her kid behind. Yeah. Can people be so cruel? Easy to be hard. Easy to be cold. And I like that because it's one of the songs that in the whole thing that feels really earnest and it feels really like there's an emotion there, like a really heavy emotion. It's like to me, in that song, like shit gets real. Like yes. it felt really real to me. That's, I cried that, during that. That's yeah. that's why that particular song, in comparison with the others, 
I found the most like moving and that's when I thought that the, there was like an emotional connection for me within the music. Yeah. Uh, it's not like I'm not saying that I don't like the other some of the other musical moments because they're you know they're entertaining but the emotional connection that I felt I only felt with that one. I felt the same way about that song and the last song at the very end, Let the Sunshine In. I think those two yeah. songs are the most... Yeah, like, that's true. We're getting, we're getting real right here yeah. and not creating allegories or being absurd. Because a lot of the, the movie is about infiltrating normalities mm-hmm. with absurdity. Yeah. It's well, the like, same like, thing that Foreman has done in all of his films. Like that scene when they go to the rich people's uh, party and they like basically... Dance on trash the tables. Dance on the table and they just completely trash the party. We're here with Mr. Burger. Um, it's, yeah. Oh, that's another thing I'd like to say. George Burger, uh, played by Treat Williams. Who was actually discovered uh, when he was doing the musical version of Grease. Really? Yeah, that's how What he... another musical I really love. Yeah, so... Um, I guess you're gonna love this guy even more. Damn, I want to see some film of him. As uh, was he, Danny? I have no in clue Greece? what his role was. Oh my goodness! Well, I love him as George he's Berger. He's definitely handsome, he's so I wouldn't very be surprised. Handsome and just he's really my type. I wish I would. <laughs> <laughs> I love him, um, but he was so just full of life and energy in this movie. Yeah. I think his character was the character that kept me going through he's, the whole he's movie. He's a great performer. And then the end, his part at the end was crazy to me. It really caught me off guard, and I had no idea how this was going to end, and I loved that, too. It kept me on my toes. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. what's going on in this crazy musical. Um, and, you know, it gets... It is an anti-war film, right? And that definitely comes through in the end sequence. But it's also very respectful of veterans and the people who have died fighting wars in our Mm -hmm. country, in our fucked up country. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a great quote that kind of plays off of that that duality um, from Milos, Milos Forman. He says... I had lived so long under communism that, for me, anybody who fought against communism was a hero. America was a hero for fighting the communists in Vietnam, but Hair, the musical, was an act of freedom for me as well. Freedom trumped everything. I was amazed at how free the country was, that it could look at itself in the mirror and see its own dark side. It's a really interesting quote because, you know, you have to think, he's from Czechoslovakia, he grew up in communism so he saw that as an evil and it always oppressed him killed his parents Mm -hmm. and almost sent him to prison so he's always going to have that anti you know he hates communism and so he saw america as a hero in a way for being in vietnam war it's very weird but it also seems to be like when he talks about the dark side he's obviously talking about the war in vietnam because that's the dark side that that we see in the movie yes so it's like this duality mm -hmm. like complexity and i mean yeah it's and we all have we all have that complexity and i think and And i I think it's interesting yeah i really respect him for like saying that yeah. it could be something that's a little cringe worthy, like, oh, yeah. America's a hero for being in the Vietnam War. But, but then, he just said yeah. it because that's the truth, and that's what he strived for his entire life was just to be honest and work through shit together, yeah. right? And I love that quote from him. I don't know if that's the truth that Americans are heroes for fighting communism in Vietnam. I don't definitely see it like that. No, no, and I don't think, I think that quote is him saying that he's not sure about that either. He's showing the complexity of it. Yeah, exactly. And, but the thing is, what's funny is that it's not really that way in America. We don't look at our dark side. Maybe back then, a little bit through the arts, we funded arts so that Mm -hmm. we could see our dark side. But now we don't fund arts. We don't fund things that criticize America. It really is becoming We a do, but it, 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 we do, but, but it's it's getting it seems like it feels like it's getting harder and harder to yes. get that. And it seems like there's like less financial support to make those kind of things. Definitely. Um one of other scenes that I also enjoyed a lot of this movie is when he when the character of like the Treat Williams character when he goes and visits his mom and dad and it reminded me of of his mm. old movies because yeah. the, the the mom and the dad act they they were to me like the same 
they they acted very similar to the mom and dad in in Loves of a Blonde. Yeah. The, uh -huh. the, the boyfriend's uh, parents. Yes. They are, they were really similar. Like, yeah. Bickering uh, and yeah, kind bickering, of disagreeing yeah. with each other all the time, and the overbearing mother who I is, know. wears the pants in the house. Actually. Yeah. It was it was yeah. it was hilarious. I love that scene. I think it was one of my favorite scenes. And then the what my other favorite scene, this. which I feel conflicted about, I have to say. Uh, is the scene uh, of the when they're going into the draft and they're getting I guess I guess they're getting checked to see if they're you know like all the men have if they're to, physically if they're fit. physically yeah. fit so they mm -hmm. have to go and be under underwear in front of all these other soldiers so yeah. they can check if they're fit and they have that hilarious scene where they have this guy who doesn't refuses to take his socks off and they actually lift him up and take his socks off and it looks like he has some uh, some some red toenails. It's, it's, yeah, I mean that's a commentary on the army did not allow any any kind of sexuality. Yeah, but then it's but then fluidity. but then it's it's hilarious because then that happens, and then and then and then we see these soldiers, uh, singing about how much they like boys, and I feel conflicted about this because part of that song make they they played this song, basically called Black Boys and White Boys. And, and, you know, why don't we just listen to it real quick? Okay. And I went nearly crazy because I really crave chocolate flavor treats. Ooh. Black boys are nutritious. nutritious. Black boys fill me up. up. White boys are so pretty. So as you can see, they, you know, I guess they're explaining why white, the people that are singing, the black boys are out there, it's white women and the white soldiers saying about how much they love black boys. And then the black soldiers and, and also black women are sing, singing about how much they like white boys. Yeah. Which um, is a little cringy every time you refer to a person in terms of food, especially when you're a person of color and chocolate and cocoa and everything. It makes me cringe a little bit. Uh, but then it gets so hilarious when you see these, these very masculine uh, soldiers singing that. <laughs> it's, it yeah. just that it just the whole thing is so ridiculous that is that I ended up like enjoying it because it was kind of bonkers. It was completely bonkers. Yeah, that again was not expecting that to happen. No. I can see your the conflict in that though. It's a little cringy. It's a little yeah. I'd like to read the lyric, the full lyrics for that. Yeah. Song. Let's see what's going on with that. But I think in the end. But in the end, in the end, if you put it in the context end. of the time, nineteen seventy nine where interracial relationships were still such a taboo, it almost seems, I guess, for the political climate of that time, I guess it would be considered sort of bold and progressive, and they're pushing that message. So even though now it might make us kind of cringe for mm -hmm. the things they say, it's kind of appropriate for the time. And it kind of has, it's mm -hmm. trying to, to push a positive message of yeah. equality and liking people from different races. And and like, yeah, like like kind of like, destroying that taboo about interracial relationships. What do you think if um, this movie wasn't a musical? Do you think the same storyline could work without the music? I don't know. Uh, I mean, it'll have to be a still. It would be a really weird fucking movie. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I think it would be, be just like a completely different thing. Totally I don't know. Different. I think the music... Good musicals that do deal with heavy topics are able to do that through the pure, like, raw emotion of singing, of belting out a song like that, if it be it about the, the black boy, white boy duality song, the Age of Aquarius, the Sodomy song. Sodomy song is great. Any of these. Being able to belt out and say these lyrics, and sing these lyrics at the top of your lungs is such an emotional release that it helps deal with trauma and helps deal with yeah. really dark... Um, awful issues happening yeah. in America at the time. That's why I think it's so powerful. 
has to be musical. One of the characters that I actually was delighted by her presence just because she's beautiful in this movie and she wears the most amazing outfits is uh, Beverly D'Angelo. Yeah. But I do think that they don't give her a lot to do with her role. No, like they it kind of doesn't do much and that was kind of disappointing to me. She has a lot of unspoken complexity, um, a lot of looks on her face that don't that go without dialogue or or I, musical numbers. And she deserved better. She She's, deserved a little bit more. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, and a couple of interesting um, pop culture references from this uh, movie. Uh, actually, very famous people auditioned for this movie. Yeah. Um, Madonna auditioned for this movie. She just I don't, wouldn't I don't, have fit. I don't, I, don't, I don't know for what role, but yeah. this was 1979, so this was before she was even famous. Okay. Um, which is interesting. She probably tried out for Sheila. Probably. No, but she's too, I think she would have tried to play one of the hippies. I don't know. Who knows? And then the other person uh, was Bruce Springsteen. Oh, I also have a story that I wanted to share real quick about Cheryl Barnes, the woman who plays Lafayette's wife. Um, this was uh, when, when he was going through the audition process uh, Milos Forman said that this was the most mesmerizing of all auditions because she's such, mm. she was such an amazing singer and amazing presence mm. and she asked her like how can she like con how can he contact uh, her um, agent and she said that there was no agent well I'm a maid and I work at a hotel whoa and really? she actually took the day off to audition for the role and well she ended up getting it I think I need to watch this movie again I think for someone who is not necessarily acquainted very much with musicals and has a level of discomfort with musicals mm. uh, it might be a good thing for me to watch again but yeah I guess my feelings towards this movie are uneven definitely appreciate moments of it yeah okay that's good that's you know for a non-musical fan that's progress <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Foreman's 1981 turn-of-the-century New York epic uses parallel narratives to explore both the American dream and racial tensions in America. It focuses on the story of pianist Cole House Walker Jr., played by Howard Rollins, and his quest to do absolutely everything in his power to achieve justice. It's a who's who kind of a cast, even featuring very small cameos by Fran Drescher and Samuel L. Jackson before their fame. Foreman cast the then 81-year-old James Cagney in what would be his last film role. Ragtime received eight Oscar nominations, none of which were Best Picture or Best Director, and won zero of those Oscars. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> oh, that's 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 a shame. That's how it goes sometimes. Yeah, but I think at least I, they got the he got a little bit of recon recognition, especially for the actor Howard Rollins, who played Cole House Walker Jr. He was an unknown. He was a school teacher before this um, movie, and Milos Forman went on an, on a, on the edge and went for took him. a risk and took went a risk for him and it paid off. Yeah, he was excellent. Yeah. Um, and now that we're talking about him, um, since, yeah. we, since we started with him, uh, yeah, he's an, he was an excellent actor, and I was I, I looked him up because I thought he was so good. It was like, oh my god, this guy, you know, probably has could have had like, like a big career, but yeah. he died really young. He he died at forty six in nineteen ninety six uh, from uh, uh, leukemia. Oh. So. Yeah, it's a bummer because yeah. it was great. It was amazing. He really, his, um, his presence in the film was so. I mean, he carried larger the, than life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very genuine and very believable. Uh, a lot of difficult scenes that he had to do, and definitely he was a trooper. He was so good at the whole thing, and they're like some of the scenes that he has to do are like larger than life. Like, yeah, incredible. He was great. Yeah, so he plays a a pianist. He plays piano in the clubs, mm -hmm. and um, he has uh, he has a girlfriend who has a baby, and there's some issues with them. And then what really is the big tension 
um, in the film for him is the scene where a group of volunteer firemen do something terrible to his car for no apparent reason except for racial they put, reason, they reasons. Literally put a, they put a, a cow turd or a horse, horse turd, turd or something, something in his car. In the and, front seat, yeah. And they refuse to clean it up and fix it and then he's doesn't, yeah. not going to take like no for an answer. And, he... and that action spirals out of control. Rightfully and so, in rightful, my opinion. Rightfully so, but to a degree that you never really hear about. I mean, it's just something that's very um, honorable in one way, but the way yeah. the direction he takes his actions are very over the top and uh, makes for great entertainment. But it's really... Well, um, going back to that action, basically he, it's it's almost like terrorism. What happens in the film to and him? Like, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. He, that's how he approaches the issue. He's like, okay, you're not gonna help me. I am gonna create a gang of people, and we're gonna terrorize you. Right. And they were bombing people, and they were yeah, they were causing terror, and that kind of leads me to think that. I wonder if this movie would be the kind of movie... I wonder if this movie would even get made right now. Especially right. when there's this... Because it's it's a very taboo subject. Terrorism and racism. <laughs> They're both taboo subjects, yeah. but... Yeah, nobody likes talking about it. And, and like, But for me... I well, Like, he, by watching this um, movie, for example, that he took matters in his own hand and he had to take it to that level... I completely understand it because if you're in that situation when you know things are so unjust for you and you have to put up with this just lack of respect and and just not being treated like a human being like everyone else and nobody wants to listen to you nobody wants to do anything about it yeah. I understand the desperation to want to do something like that yeah, and he was basically, in the film, he demands that his car get, car get cleaned by the fireman who did the act. So he was using just pure logic, like, yeah. oh, you did this, now you must clean it up. I mean, credit to Milos Foreman, too, for working with somebody who had never been in a film before yeah. and doing such an enormous role. So. Well, you know, he's used to working with non-actors, so... Right. Yeah, he's, it makes sense, he's, huh? He's, you know, he's used to taking risks like that, you know. Yeah. So, like I said in the intro, was, this is like a who's who movie. There's a lot of famous, oh now God. famous people now famous, in, this yeah. film, in this film. Um, I already noted Fran Drescher and Samuel L. Jackson. And Fran Drescher, who, who actually has a role where she doesn't even speak English. Yeah, it's, she's... Is it Yiddish? Yiddish? Yiddish. Yiddish? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, she plays a very angry um, Jewish, Jewish woman, woman in, screaming I mean, in the she, streets of New York. She's <laughs> really great, and I mean, it's a small role, but yeah, just I mean, for us from our generation, uh, we just see her as the nanny, and it's just interesting to see her as this to hear that voice and yelling Yiddish and just not being glamorous at, in, ter- and, in turn of the century New York. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's. Funny and this and Samuel L. Jackson too. He's in it. He's part of the gang uh, of uh, Walker's gang, and he uh, you if you blink you might miss Samuel L. Jackson, but he's he's there. Yeah, it's, it's probably one of his first roles, like before he became incredibly incredibly famous. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad Dourif is in this film too. He's incredible in it. He he was also in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Foreman. And Norman Mailer, the author and philosopher, makes a um, cameo, cameo as well as Stanford White, the man who gets, who really uh, also an action that spurs the entire movie forward too. Yeah. It's the shooting of, of his character. Talking about Brad Dourif, he's an interesting guy too because, you know, he comes, he did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and he was excellent in that movie. Yeah. And then he made this one and he's excellent too. I would think, like, I see a guy like that, I would think he could be like a, like, like Philip Seymour Hubman or someone like that, yeah. because he's so, he's so incredible. Right. And so believable. But he didn't. He didn't go that route. And I was looking at, you know, his filmography, and he, he became, 
like a voice. He became one of the voice actors in, in, in Child's Play. He played Chucky. Really? Yeah, he's Chucky? He's Chucky. Oh in all, even in the most... He, he played Chucky in the original, and even in the newer ones, he still wow. plays that role. And he did a lot mm. of, like, horror movies. Some, like, B-movie... Well, I think that might explain why he didn't make it like a Philip Seymour Hoffman well, kind of guy, because he has a kind of... He has a uh, instinctually creepiness to him. Yeah. I think that isn't pleasing to a lot of people. I mean, he's an amazing actor, but he's, there's it. also something dark a little within creepy him, about him in yeah. every single role that's like, Ugh. So I can see why horror was like a... Maybe his agents were like pushing him to do horror, or maybe it was something in him that he actually did enjoy doing horror movies. Who knows? Right. But it was just... It's really interesting that someone that was doing all this sort of... I guess you could call it, I don't know, Oscar-nominated Oscar films. Oscar-nominated dramas. And then, yeah. and then you end up doing Child's Play. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Chucky. Wow, I'm going to have to rewatch that and think about him. Yeah, a lot of this, a lot of, there's a lot of actors that I was, that didn't really continue. Like, also like Elizabeth McGovern. Yeah. Who is uh-huh. amazing in this role. I think she's so funny and she's, she's great. Yeah. Uh, she she doesn't do a lot of work in Hollywood, like in movies afterwards. And she ends up, you know, now we see her, in, she's in Downtown Abbey now, and she's doing, she works in you know, BBC uh, TV show. Yeah. And she does a lot of theater. And actually, in one of the interviews that she uh, that she had recently, she said that that Hollywood didn't suit her, that it wasn't for her. Which That's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, she's a theater girl. She's a theater person, yeah. Yeah. Mary Steenburgen yeah, is amazing so in this good. too. She's pregnant during the film. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think they. So many I don't actors. think they needed Jack Nicholson in this movie because they wanted him to play a cameo, and yeah. actually he said yes, and and you know they were gonna do it, but then his agent apparently called, and said no, yeah. he's too busy, and, and they didn't want him to to be like, overexposed. Oh, so, overexposed. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, also he probably would have hammed it up. Again, as usual. One more um, thing. Mike Nichols' kids are in this movie. Really? They, they play the children of the upper middle class family, both of his kids. Huh, oh, wow. Isn't that weird? That's cool. Well, Mike Nichols, and, Mike Nichols is one of the greatest American directors. And yeah. I wonder if they had some kind of friendship with Mil- Milos Forman. I'm sure, kinda cool. I'm sure they knew each other. And Robert Altman was supposed to direct this, but then it moved on to Milos. And you know, yeah, now that you're right. saying that, I uh-huh. think this is a good... It's a good. Uh, it's gonna lead us to talk more about the film because yeah. I was looking. Uh, I mean, aside from the cast, uh, I was looking a lot of like the what the critics were saying about this film, mm-hmm. and there was a little mourning of Robert Altman not directing this oh, film. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. It seemed like a lot of critics really wanted Altman to make this movie because it's such an American film, and he's. I mean, it seems very like American a Robert director. Altman film. Yeah. So, but they also embrace Milos Forman because the results, they were not what they expected, but it's still a great movie. So yeah. they, it was embraced by critics. Yeah. But there's still that sense that they kind of wanted Altman mm-hmm. to direct this. Yeah. I almost feel like it may have been similar. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, you, we will never know. We'll never know. It does have a very Robert Altman-y vibe to it but mm-hmm. it's 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 Milos's thing too he you know he always really punches in the the um the rebels subversive and yeah subversive and he, he always gives rebels the most screen time and really yeah. fights for justice in his films yeah so that's that's a very I mean that's the script as well but that's I think um a Milos Forman trope mm-hmm. as well I will say the plot line, the parallel narratives mm. were a little hard to follow for me sometimes. Some of them, yeah. And they kind of jump between each other quite a bit. I don't know how many narratives do you think are happening at one given time. I think some of the narratives for like me, like I think like some of them made sense. Like I was seriously, and they do a really good job when they concentrate on, on the Walker character uh, narrative. Because that you see the constant flow of the whole thing. I but think, they don't start doing that until about, what do you think, 20, 
minutes into the film, 25 minutes into the film. Yeah, something like yeah. that. I think, yeah, I think the beginning, the whole thing, I think the, the plot that gets sort of like, you don't understand why it's there, but still so enjoyable that I was like, okay, I like seeing this because it's because it's mostly the, the role of Evelyn uh, played by Elizabeth McGovern. Like that whole storyline with her seemed kind of like um, what's the point of this yeah. like, like why well I also felt the same way about the um, uh, even though she was great but I think he was oh shit I'm forgetting I think he was a, uh, a Yiddish yeah he was a oh, the same, Jewish director yeah. he was like a Jewish um, artist in the street and then you see his story he, he sells up. these he sells these um, booklets that uh, the silhouette booklets and then he becomes a film director and Mary Steenburgen's character ends up kind of being interested well in I think I think in a way what that was trying to show it's kind of like how the American dream works different for certain people you yeah, know, like and this same guy. with the Evelyn character too. I yeah. think that's what those. Well, like, yeah, like are. the Evelyn character. She's a white girl, and then look, she becomes like a famous actress. Yeah. And then the Jewish man, you know, he still has to deal with the fact that he's Jewish and there's anti-Semitic people, whatever. Yeah. But he's still he's able to turn around and do the American, yeah, and you know, and follow the American dream. Yeah. But it, it's not the same for Walker. Cause, right. Because he's black and he has to deal with. Uh, you know, like, in, incredible odds. Uh, well, that's what with I... The rice, with, with the racism he was facing. Without, you know, spoiling the ending, I did want to mention, I mean, that's basically the ending of the film is all the white people get off scotch-free. Yep. Basically, even the people who have murdered other people get are free now. Yeah. And the man who simply wanted the horse shit clean, cleaned out of his hard-earned vehicle um, gets gets the shit end of the stick. As they say. Even though I love the film, I gotta say I love this film. With, even with things that I had issues with, uh, it's the length. It's a, it could have been a little, a little bit shorter. Well, they even cut out scenes um, from yeah. it to make it shorter. And I will say, it does seem like scenes are cut out of it too. Well, actually, Mil- Miller's foreman, he was opposed to the cutting. Yeah. They cut about thirty minutes. And it was me. It was Dino Laurentiis' decision. He wanted thirty minutes okay. out because he mm-hmm. thought it was too long. And this is the part that involves Emma Goldman, and she was a uh, political activist. She was an anarchist, uh-huh. and there was like a in little, real, in yeah, real life, yeah, yeah. She was a real. It was. Um, she existed. She was a real and person. She's in the film too. Yeah. Oh, I mean, in she the was story, part of the story. But she was cut. Uh huh. And they cut that part. And according to Miller's foreman, he thought that that part was really integral and that it would, like... Ooh, so, I don't know. Is there he, a director's cut of this? I don't think out so. There? I don't no. think so. And I oh, hope fuck, he doesn't never, do it. Well, well he's he, dead. He's dead. There but, never will be. Um, if there isn't already. Hmm. I bet there's a print somewhere out of the original cut. But aside from that, it's just... A lot of the things are just so... It's just so great. And so it's... It's such an intense story, and so it's such a moving story, and the acting, it's just amazing. And by the way, we didn't mention James Cagney's acting, because he's amazing. Oh yeah, he's so great he's in so it. He's so great in it. He's in a wheelchair while they filmed most of his yeah. scenes. Just like, kind of, Yeah. he was going. But he really wanted to do it. And yeah, he was great. Beautiful. He actually signed a contract that, that said that if he wanted to leave the shoot three days before the shooting, he could. Yeah. Well, just in case. It was great. Um, One thing I really, another thing I really loved about this film was the use of um, like fake archival footage. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. um, With the Houdini character, I mean, with Houdini basically, but there's an actor playing Houdini, and um, it's the archival, quote unquote, uh, archival footage is interspersed into the film throughout. But it's not real archival footage. But I really loved that um, that duality of of um, yeah. having the newsreels kind yeah. of like give context to the to the world that they're living in, turn of the century America. It was a magical and scary place at the same time. I, yeah, I also love the opening scene, which is yeah. like like this dance. I think it's the character of Evelyn. She's dancing. Mm-hmm. So it ends and, as well. And yeah. Which is amazing because it really, because I, I really think this movie is a lot about the American dream. And then if you start the movie like that, you think this movie is going to be kind of like 
such a celebration of the American dream and kind of like showing you the lusciousness of it and whatnot. And and it's cool because it shows you kind of like the facade of it. And then it, mm-hmm. the movie also shows you the reality of it and how it works for some people, but it doesn't work for others. Yeah. And it obviously takes it to to an extreme, um, you know, because what we talked about it, it like deals with like terrorism and that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, I mean, it's not. A per- I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I still I loved it. I think it's. I enjoyed it. I think it's incredible. I think it's a great film. I don't film. know if I'd say I loved it. I enjoyed I did, it. I did loved it. Okay, cool. I thought it was really great. All right, moving on. Okay. Nineteen eighty four Amadeus finally gave Milos Forman his second Oscar for Best Movie and Best Director. For sure Forman was able to convince Hollywood that he was more than worth it. The film is a historical fantasy exploring the rumored animosity that Antonio Salieri felt for Amadeus Mozart. The film marked a return for Forman to the Czech Republic where it was filmed. The shoot was supervised by a Czech security team with ties to the communist government. Some crew members were suspected of being spies. What? Actor Tom Holtz never played the piano before, but played it for four hours every day to get ready for the part. He also came up with the Amadeus distinctive laugh. In 2002, Milos Forman released a director's cut with 20 minutes of additional footage. This version wasn't as well received as the original, and it will probably will be discussed for years to come among cinematic freaks. Freaks? Yes, freaks. <laughs> um, so we watched this together, but we watched the director's cut together, and, I also, and you went off and watched I, I, I also the normal watched, one, So right? we watched both. Yeah. Um, and, you God, know... God, I love this movie. It, it was a weird... It was weird for me because I saw the director's cut first. That was the first Oof, time I ever saw that's it. That's unfortunate. And I liked this movie, but I definitely had like a tainted experience. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, I'm sorry. But, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. Like, especially in the beginning. It's so fucking funny. And just the, uh, the, the production design. The art direction is and the art direction. I mean, that won an Oscar. It's well deserved because it was just out of this world yeah and and you know the, the, all the performances like Mozart like, like Tom Holtz is amazing yeah that's one of the um, performances that I just get stuck in your head maybe because of the laugh that he came up with oh yeah oh. Well, and, and a lot of it too is the costume design they really create this character yeah. and all the wigs that he the that wigs he the carries around wig, and yeah he becomes like a rock star and he gets the pink wig basically and and also well it's not only him but also uh, Maury Abraham who plays uh, Salieri he's amazing yeah and the first time we see him is with a lot of makeup and, an and like man. an old man mm-hmm. and he's so creepy and still so can't stop looking at him and wanting to hear what he has to say. Yeah, so it's, they use like a storytelling narrative structure yeah. in this film where it's Salieri reflecting upon his time when he was a younger man, when he knew Mo- Mozart. And the conflict between him as a composer mm-hmm. and Mozart as a more popular younger composer and how much Salieri wanted to be that and wanted to have that talent. And he just yeah. didn't quite... He couldn't get the it. Chops, but he tried. Didn't much have harder. it. He had it. He, he, he didn't have it to be a pop star. He just couldn't do it. You know? And it's something I think this film does um, have a lot of commentary on on what is what is talent. You I know? think it's kind of how Prince felt about Michael Jackson, even though they're both amazing. But I think Prince always wanted to be like a Oof, like a multimillionaire, a like yeah, like. You know, the pop star like pop? the king of pop. He wanted to that's be like why that. He's called, is that why he's called Prince? Well, he tried, and that he did Purple Rain, which is like his most pop album ever. Wanting to like get there, but yeah. you know, and they're both great. But Michael Jackson's Michael Jackson, and Prince is Prince. But yeah, yeah. 
I, I don't think Salieri got as lucky as Prince because pr- most no, people was, don't remember Salieri at I was going to say, actually... <laughs> so it's not that, exactly the same. Yeah, that um, Salieri's character was often kind of poked fun at and, and made fun of within the, I, would, I guess I would say, the musical enjoying crowd. Um, and Mozart would even make fun of him and his compositions. Yeah, so it's different. And I don't think Michael Jackson would have made fun of Prince. I don't think so. I so, don't think so. And unless, I don't know. I guess the only thing they had in common is, like, one of them was more of a pop star, more popular, I guess. Uh-huh. And, they, and there was animosity. That's it. That's the only thing they have in common. Right. But, um, anyways, and this movie has, to me, one of the greatest opening scenes. That opening scene is hilarious. When we see uh, two of his uh, servants trying to trick him to come out of his room, trying to trick Salieri to come out of his room yeah. with, like, dessert. Yeah. One of which is Vincent Schiavelli. Who is a great character actor. We, we've and he's about in a lot of Milos Forman's movies. Uh-huh. And, and then after this, he tries to Is it to ice cream or custard? Some, some, some cream thing. Custard-y I don't, I don't, cream. They start eating it and, like, mm, it's, it's delicious. delicious. Trying to get him, like, treating him like a little kid. Yeah. But... He doesn't come out, and he actually attempts to kill himself, and then he ends up in the nut house. So yeah, it's a beautiful opening scene. It's crazy, it and it's funny. It's and, hilarious, and it's funny, tragic, and funny. Um, yeah, the, it's a tragedy. Um, I can't believe this didn't win best editing because the throughout the whole film, I was like, oh, the editing is like such a crucial and huge part of the comedic timing in this film mm-hmm. and creating the tension. I thought the editing was really exemplary for for this genre. Yeah. Well, you know, to me, the editing was kind of messed up because I saw both. Yeah. Because I, I, I don't know. I should have just watched the original. So I I'm think... Sorry. So you didn't, couldn't see it. In I, yeah, it was clearly. hard for me to like really have like an opinion about that, to be honest. Yeah. But... I have to say, the I definitely enjoyed the first half of the movie more than I enjoyed the last part. I think that's the part in the director's cut that's butchered a little bit more is the last half. The last half just uh, feels very long. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in the yeah, it's a little bit short. It's it's not as long in the in the original. Um. So another cool thing about this film is Milos Forman got to work with almost an entirely Czech crew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in actuality, it's, I mean, it's kind of a Czech film. Kind of. But they're speaking English, and he has, um, he has American actors, mostly American and maybe some British actors, mm-hmm. um, who he instructed to use their, their own accents, their just normal accent in the film, because, you know, this, the story takes place, place in Austria, mm-hmm. um, um, so that they could focus on their roles and focus on that. And sometimes that really bothers me in films when it's like, oh, this takes place in France and everybody has an English accent oh, or yeah. something. But it really it works in this film it because it's it's almost on the edge of a um, like a Baz Luhrmann film where it's like this period film and it's complete, but it's com- and it's based on some something real that happened or a real or a story that's but very legendary story, it's but a fantasy it's very element. fantasy. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, yeah, I I did think even watching the the, the um, original film, for me it was like two halves, and I definitely enjoyed the first half more. I think towards the end it gets, it obviously gets a little bit darker. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it just started to get long for me. Mm-hmm. It just started. I don't know. I I don't know. It's like a matter of editing or something. But I just kind of wanted it to be to go a little bit faster. So, I know we both kind of freaked out during this time, but when Cynthia Nixon oh my takes God. the screen in every single part of the film when she takes the Cynthia, screen, she's great. She is so she's, good in this movie. It's yeah. a small role. She plays the maid of Mozart, who's placed there as a spy by Soli, by Salieri, basically, mm-hmm. so that she can come to Salieri and, and tell him what he's working on, what compositions he's working mm-hmm. on. Um, so he can keep tabs on him and know what he should be doing, and he's obsessed, you know. 
She's crying half of she during cries half a of lot. her role. She's kind of traumatized. Lines. Yeah, slightly traumatized. But she was really incredible. Very young Cynthia Nixon. Yeah, I, I mean, again, um, Milos Forman shows us again how great he is with actors. Mm-hmm. Every everyone here is just great. It's perfect, um, and it's also interesting in this film too how a lot of the actors. I don't think any of the actors in this film were able to have another film like this. Like, I don't think they ever... Yeah, there's no... This kind of success. Right, there's no really, really... um, And I was looking a little bit, investigated a little bit on on what happened to them. And, Uh like, uh, for example, uh, Moray Abraham, who actually won the Oscar. Right. By a lot of critics, he he was being accused of getting, like, the Oscar jinx. Aww. You know, it's just like, kind of like what happened to Helen Hunt, for example. Okay. She got like a, you know, she went for as good as it gets and then you never heard of her mm-hmm. anymore. Even though she was still working, but she was, she never got back that kind of same notoriety. Right, okay. Uh, and, and actually, Abraham Murray, he worked with a lot of actors. He uh, with a lot of great directors after, with Gus Van Sant. Mm-hmm. He also worked with the Coen brothers and he also worked with Wes Anderson. In smaller roles, but... Okay. What Wes Anderson movie is he in? Uh, he was in his last, uh, not the animated film, but the... Uh, Budapest. Budapest, Budapest Hotel? Hotel. He's in it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he actually, Maury Abraham, he was asked about this Oscar jinx, and he said something. Inside he actually have a quote by him, and he says, Even though I won the Oscar, I can still take the subway in New York, and nobody recognized me. Some actors might find that disconcerting, but I find it refreshing. He has a point. Yeah. So he's, you know, yeah. he's like a character actor. He's still doing his thing. Mm-hmm. He's just not getting nominated for awards. And he's not making, like, super big, flashy movies. But he's still working with great, talented directors. So yeah, no big seems deal. Seems like he's doing it's fine. Not, he's not. He's fine. He's doing he, fine. He, yeah, he's not um, at living the actuality of Salieri yeah. right now. And then he's Tom, Tom Holtz, who actually started his career in Animal House in 1978, uh, he was later on. He he voiced the Hunchback of Notre Dame Disney movie in 1996. Cool. And yeah. the last thing he did, he worked as a producer in The Seagull, uh, 2018, which is a, it's a brand it's a new movie. It came out this year with Annette Bening in it. It's a period piece. And he's the producer. On he's it? the producer. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So, so he's, getting, he's, okay. he's been doing a lot of producing work, and and he also, from what I heard, he's also doing theater. Uh, which is the same case with Elizabeth Berridge, who plays uh, Constance, uh, Constance Mozart. Mozart. Yeah, she was so good. In she was movie. excellent, oh. and I was kind of surprised that she because she was also really beautiful. Really and I was like, I would think this woman could have been like, I don't know, like this next hot thing or whatever, like yeah. you know. But I guess she didn't, and she also kind of went back to theater, and she was in the mm. in a, on TV too in the John Larroquette show. I never saw that, but. No, no, no. But yeah, she she kind of she did a lot of theater, not as much as as um, as much as movies. If I'm gonna point out something that, to me, in my own opinion, that seems to be an ongoing issue for myself uh, in a lot of Milos Forman's films, mm-hmm. not his Czech films, because all his Czech films with timing it's perfect. Some of them are like an hour and a half, right? But with his American films, they always tend to kind of like what be a little it? bit too long. Is he still like a great like filmmaker that everybody should watch his movies doesn't take anything away from him join us next time for episode three part three of our milos foreman filmography special thanks bye